Well, uh, thank you very much, Toland. So I got up to open the window so that if it began to rain heavily again, you could hear it. For those of you who are uh, in California and certainly in the Bay Area, you know that it's been raining finally uh, and that it started uh, it started yesterday and it rained really hard overnight. And I remember uh, this isn't going to be the end of the drought. They keep saying that on the television. It's not the end of the drought, folks. But it was a lot of rain yesterday and it's going to rain today and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And I was remembering I've lived here in the same house, actually, for 60 years. And about 30 years ago, I can't even remember exactly the year, there was a really terrible drought and it really was scary. There were a lot of fires. And uh, I was, I, I think this is how it came up. I was teaching yoga at the time at the College of Marin. And I would play uh, the kind of music that people play in yoga classes, kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, Indian music, which is really beautiful, all kinds of strings that we're not so accustomed to, beautiful music. And uh, one day, and it was in the middle of the drought, we couldn't flush toilets, we were rationing showers, we were taking showers with with buckets in the shower with us to collect the water that came down in the shower water to use it to flush toilets with. It was really a very bad drought. And when it ended, all of a sudden it started to rain. And I stopped playing music for the yoga class. And I opened all the windows so we could just listen to the sound of the rain because it was so pleasant. And I was thinking about that yesterday. I thought I, I got up several times in the night and I opened my windows so I could hear the rain falling. I was thinking about how in the eye of the beholder, everything is in the eye of the beholder. Actually, I, uh, I, uh, I, I was telling Tolan just before we began this morning that maybe, maybe the name of this talk this morning is everything depends on everything because, uh, everything depends on the water here in California, including the safety of living here. But really everything depends on everything because I'm thrilled that it's raining. Oh, and I can hear it's raining again. Probably you can't hear it from there. But I'm also thrilled, particularly it's raining, and it's the beginning of the rain season and the beginning of the winter. The same sound that sounds so good now will not sound good in California if it happens in April, which is when just after all the fruit trees flower. And if we had a very big wind, when we have a very big late season rain and it blows all the blossoms off the trees it's very bad for the fruit farmers so it has to be it's not that this sound is great is that this sound is great if it's in the right time and the right place everything depends on everything you can say that's a beautiful sound but if it's at the right time that's, i would really have been thinking about that it's like it's uh, hearing being in the ears of the hearer and seeing in the eyes of the, what's the expression? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So we see and we hear uh, contingent on what is our internal situation, which is always egocentric. How is this for me? Do I need this? Is this good for me? 
So this is the time every uh, week that I'm here. And I think when Heidi's here, there's always some sort of arriving meditation just to make sure that everybody is paying attention right here now because we've had to leave whatever we were doing. We didn't have to travel, but here we are. And usually it's close your eyes and feel your breath and feel your body. But I want to do an open eye meditation this morning and uh, a seeing meditation because I've just said that hearing is so pleasant because it bring, I can learn a lot that I learn that this particular sound is very pleasant to me because of our dire water situation. And I remember it will not be pleasant. And then I remember the Dharma of it all, that everything depends on everything for it to be desirable and soothing. So in a minute, uh, as our growing ourselves together, let's take three deep breaths in and out. One, two, three. I'll do it with you. And now we'll have maybe four minutes. I'll watch on my big wall clock, starting now, of open eye, seeing and thinking meditation. But wait, wait, Tola, not quite yet. This, what you're going to see is going to be the cover of the New Yorker magazine from the 6th of September of this year, so five weeks ago. And I'm going to say to you, first of all, I, I can't bring myself to recycle this magazine because of this cover, which is, I think, outstanding. And I'd like you to look at it carefully and that your meditation should be, what's the Dharma message in there? I think this is, I could make a two-hour Dharma talk on what's on the cover of this particular New Yorker. So I won't say anything. I watch the clock, tell them to watch the clock. And, uh, okay, three, three, not three hours, three minutes from now, I'll ring a bell. So ready, set, go. Just look at this.
We're just beginning our third minute now. So I would like you in the next minute to think about what's the Dharma lesson? If you were going to make a Dharma statement and raise your hand, you don't, don't think about it too much. If you think you know what's the lesson in here in one sentence or two, then please put your raise your hand and we're going to take 10 raised hands because you're just going to say one sentence. So let me encourage you to be one of the hand raisers. You can say this one I like the most or this one I think is it. And this one I think the whole the whole point of it is. And how you say that in Buddha Dharma would be. I think it's a whole Dharma talk. Okay, we have 30 seconds left. Maybe one more person will raise hand. No, we had four. There we go, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> okay. Going, going, gone. Here we are. Let's do a half screen. So, okay, 10 people raised hand. No more raising. <laughs> for now. All right, 11. No more raising from now. And let's share the screen with, I'm sure Tolan knows how to do that. Um, so I could stop the share or would you like me to... Well, I'd like you to push that over to the side so everybody can see it. And we'll call on people one at a time. If we can't do it and see their, fa their faces, Tolan, that's okay. We'll figure out how to do it. Who was you, you call on people and we'll all be looking at this. All the better if we're not looking at you. You don't have to think about it. Who had their hand up first? Okay. Let's, um, so Marilyn Lane had the hand up first. Go, Marilyn. Well, I didn't realize I was first. Um, when I looked at this, what I saw is desire is what causes suffering or difficulty. So everybody is wanting something that they don't have right now. Terrific. Thank you very much, Marilyn. All right. Uh, Nancy is next. Well, I was going to say the same thing that longing is the for something you don't have is the source of all suffering. And I think it's interesting that even if people who are eating want something else, people who are drinking want to be drinking something else. Thank you. So nobody is satisfied. They're all looking forward instead of paying attention to what they're doing. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. That Wait, what was the what? What's your name? Nancy. Nancy, thank you, Nancy. Search the world over. There's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. You remember that? Okay. <laughs> the third person sharing. Aaron is the next person. Okay, Aaron, go. There you go. I now I see you too. Hi. Um, yeah, so all living things, babies, cats, dogs, birds, 
everyone has to, everything has some kind of desire. It's not just me um, experiencing this craving that can lead to suffering. It's a universal. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful way of putting uh, the cause of compassion is actually realizing that we're all in the same dilemma. Everybody is always wanting, you know, <laughs> more or different or other or you're right babies dogs that was a great way to say that everybody's great but that's another way of saying the same the cause of suffering is thank you very very much Erin so uh Birgit yes hi the first two things came up preoccupation of the mind like not being in the moment um and then also indulgence uh, because I see just ice cream and beer and pizza and just kind of feeling like covering up our our pains, numbing, just, you know, indulging. Imp- impulse also came up. Oh, that's very good. Thank you, Birgit, because we're going to study the Metta Sutta next. And uh, the net, next to the last line of it, says uh, that the person who's really broken through, uh, it says, freed from all sense desires is not born again in this world. And I, I always question that because if we had really perfect understanding, we would still want to eat or we would still want to cover ourselves when we were cold. We'd have minimal desires. We wouldn't have no sense desires. But as you point out, we always want other and a little better <laughs> instead of not just eating to keep yourself from being starving, but eating to somehow make yourself more pleased than you are now. So thank you very much. Carolyn, you're the next one. Um, I saw that sweetness, the sweetness, in quotation marks, that everybody's rushing for. And I remember... Um, Marion Woodman, a Jungian psychologist at a retreat saying, we shove down our desire with neurotic sweetness, not, not with healing. And that just causes more suffering. Oh, and thank you for reminding me of Marion Woodman because she's been gone a while, but she was really wonderful. So thank you very much. And Lee. <laughs> Most of which, most of things I've, other people have said, but I kind of find it also amusing that, you know, the, um, some of the things that people want and the, I mean, and, and really feel compassion for the guy who, or woman who dropped her ice cream cone. I mean, she had what she wanted and now it's on the ground. <laughs> and then the pretzel seller who was dreaming of carrots and broccoli or something. And I, I know, so there, there are parts of it that are just so funny. And as well as, of course, we're all not in the moment in our lives and, and all craving something to give us solace, but it's, it's just a wonderful cover. It is. Thank you very much for your insight about it. It's touching. It's poignant, I think. So, uh, uh okay who is next uh brahmani no no wait liz liz um i just thought um if you can't be with the food you want love the food you're with (laughs) 
<laughs> that, that sounds like uh, Byron Katie. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Uh, that would be the dharmic response to all of that. Make the best. <laughs> Ramani. Go, Ramani. I'm here. There I am. Um, well, first, I just want to say it was delight. It's delightful to look at. And, you know, more of the same, I think that we, I see that, you know, no matter what we're doing, we're also look guided by our sense desires in so many ways. But the one that really called and made me smile was that little baby just wanting mama, mama, you know. Um, but I think that's more than her sense desires. It's, it's survival, it's connection, you know, yeah. and mama needs a glass of wine. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of telling so so often um but it made me smile and it reminds me that you know everyone said it so beautifully but we all are just looking for a little bit of um satisfaction and peace and to have a little comfort in our life and we go go and find it through these various different ways even the cat you know, is looking for the bird and the bird is looking for the crumb and um, it's <laughs> really, yeah. So that's what I see. And, you know, like the sense desires just keep guiding us. I know, I know that one personally well. <laughs> so, so thank you yeah. very much. I love that because I, the, the, the bird who is, uh, there's another bird at the other, at the bottom left who is, hoping that that person who's eating the bagel will drop the bagel. Right. And that person at the same time is thinking, who has the bagel is thinking about cake. So uh, yeah. thank you very, very much. And yeah. you used a wonderful word that I'm going to really uh, uh, reprise, the word comfortable, that what mm-hmm. we'd all like to be is comfortable. Ali. Hi. Um, yes, most of um, what I... Uh, deduce was also already shared, but I thought that the image of the figure who lost their ice cream was particularly interesting because it just really shows how pleasure is so transient and that it's never really permanently in our grasp and we might get it and we just as quickly lose it. And then the things around you want right away want to capitalize on what you've lost. So you see the little ants or whatever marching in to try to eat the ice cream. So I think it just really illustrates how these pleasures are so impermanent as well. Well, thank you very much. I particularly love that also because I thought uh, I thought about the skill of the artist in putting those three little uh, um, exclamation points around that person's head because they, those three little things let you know that he's thinking fooey. Probably he's thinking something more strong than fooey, but you know, fooey for our purposes. And uh, it's not fooey for the ants' purposes. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. And Chase. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, the image is very, I really first want to appreciate everyone's perspective. It's like being in the art gallery. Um, but mainly what I've noticed is that everything is outside of the self, <laughs> of the existence of the being or the animal, um, and uh, how it's nothing that's within them, it's outside of them, and that's just an observance. 
um, that I noticed. Uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you all very, very much. I, I wish we were, well, I wish we had hours and hours and then we'd be in small groups and we'd be talking to each other. But I just, uh, I, I just think that one of the uh, things I think about a lot is that when I first was learning about Dharma, it seemed like something outside or something I heard about in Dharma talks or, uh, 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 or um, something that was other than my everyday life. And there was a certain point in which I thought that, uh, and probably for many of you who have been talking about these kinds of understandings for a long time, your eyes change and you begin to see the life this way and uh, really understand that uh, my sense of fooey. <laughs> How many people have we said, can you remember a time that you dropped an ice cream <laughs> or, or put your hand out and actually knocked over something or something or other? Everybody has experiences where that happens. And, um, and that these are human responses to being uncomfortable. And uh, we try very hard to keep ourselves comfortable. And what the Buddha's in the Metta Sutta, which will now go, I think this is a, probably the first time, I, I think I could be sure, that since the time of the Buddha, no one has ever put side by side to do an exegesis together of the cover of the New Yorker with the Metta Sutta. Maybe the cover of the New Yorker right uh, two or three days after September 11th. Uh, was an outstanding, you could see the whole of the Dharma in that too. And I remember using it at the time. Anyway, okay, Tolan, let's leave this one behind and let's look at everybody again. I'm glad to see you all back again. I think that the, the uh, operative word um, is comfortable. Make yourself at home. Uh, the line in the Metta Sutta, which I do want to look at now. I want to tell you some things about the Metta Sutta, and then we'll look at it in a side-by-side. -side. The Metta Sutta is, um, the, uh, is uh, called different things. It's called the um, loving-kindness teaching, the Buddhist teaching on loving-kindness. My favorite uh, translation of it, my favorite title of it, is the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness. I love that. Impartial kindness. It doesn't matter what it is, that one's heart could be turned to meeting every situation with kindness. Uh, and I, I think, I've been really thinking about it so much recently, that um, that the, the, the line, the trajectory of understanding of hearing about something like life is difficult for everybody because it's hard to stay com comfortable, which is a, a, uh, um, a, a, what do you call it when it's um, not the fancy words of the sutta? It's in ordinary language. It's in ordinary vernacular. Life comes with pain and difficulty. When you read the first noble truth of the Buddha, it says life is suffering because this and da, da, da. But it's much more graspable, I think, to say life comes with pain and difficulty, the second noble truth. We amplify that difficulty when we react to the pain and difficulty 
with confusion. When we react with hostility or aversion or push it away or we become distraught or confused about it. And the third noble truth is that we don't have to do it that way. We could respond to the vicissitudes of life with a mind that's open and understands it and gets it. This is something that I'm really glad is happening. And this is something that I'm really not glad is happening. And this is really frightening to me. And uh, This is really worrisome. And uh, I can therefore try my best to keep my mind clear so I can figure out what to do to alleviate suffering, my own and other people's. That's the whole of the Dharma, really. Uh, I, I keep thinking about, I'm sure I say it here enough times, that the phrase, how can I help, is probably the most important thing we can say in our lives. Uh, can I help you? You know, when someone comes, uh, imagine if as people were standing at a street corner and they started to cross the street, if everyone who was young came, stood next to someone who was old or someone who was obviously um uh, uh, complicated in movement and said, can I help you crossing a street? What if we had a rule that we stopped at every street corner and said, can I help you? Or that we, what can I do for you? That, in, I, I've been thinking about that. I think about it often and bring it up because it would mean in that moment that I was thinking about them and not me. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'd rather have uh, ice cream than this, or I'd rather have that than this, or I'd rather have something. That it's the, 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 it's the opposite of I'd rather have, but what can I do for you? I thought that we would put up the Metta Sutta and that uh, Tolan will do that. And I'll tell you some things about the Metta Sutta. Wait, wait, Tolan, not quite yet. Uh not quite yet, we're warming up to it. Um, first of all, you could have, or you can still find the Metta Sutta and uh, download it into your computer and uh, uh, print it out if you have all that apparatus right next to you. Because I'm going to talk to you about it. And my, uh, my Dharma talk is this. It's written all over my Metta Sutta on one piece of paper because I'm going to talk about every line of it. So, um, which, by the way, I've done so many times in my life, and each time I do it, I see different things in it that I didn't see before. And people who have done this before with me, uh, like Brahmani, for instance, who's been the movement teacher at so many meditation retreats that I've done, probably we've done this together so many times. But every time, including this morning, that I look at it, it says something else that I didn't quite understand the next time. I think that's the last time. I think that's so exciting that there's no end to learning something better. So there's some things to say about it. Uh, on all the years that I guess I'm not going to come back again, when I was um, traveling to teach Dharma in different places, you'd have a retreat here and a retreat in St. Louis and a retreat in Gainesville and something here and then New York. I don't think people are going to do that anymore. I won't do it because I'm too old to do it and it's hard to travel. But I don't think people are going to do it because it's um, much more inclusive to do things 
online. I'm hopeful that when Spirit Rock is really up and running and this pandemic is really passed, that those of us who are quite local will go to Spirit Rock and go there for classes and be able to talk to each other face to face. But that people all over the world, like in Panama or all over Canada or in the mountains of Spain, will be able to also be in that class. I think those are the classes of tomorrow and the future, and I'm very excited about that. And in all the years that I was traveling, when I traveled to teach here and there, I didn't take notes along with me of talks that I have given before because it's a new time. And I would make them up as I went along, as I mostly do now. But the only thing that I actually took with me is the printed Metta Sutta. If I forgot it, I could always download it on somebody's computer and then pass it out to everybody in the group because I like it so well and because it's a piece of genuine uh, Buddha Dharma from, not from the time, uh, I don't know that this is exactly the words that the Buddha said because as, as I see different translations of it, it's a little bit different in this one or that one. But I assume that the Pali version of it is more or less the same. Or the Sanskrit version of it exists. But each time I go through it, it has deeper meanings for it. Actually, there are several translations. This particular one, I, I really like the best. And it has a few lines that I take exception to. So I was going to say, I hope you have it uh, printed out so that as, as I read it to you, which I will in a few moments, you'll be able to write down or check off. I want to talk about this. Oh, wait a minute. This doesn't say what I wanted to say exactly. What exactly does this mean? So, uh, uh, and in all cases, I'll be able to say, you know, your guess is mine also because uh, we're all reading English translations of it. But really, it's about kindness. I'm partial kindness. And I've told you, I think so many times, people are probably tired, that uh, uh, the first lesson I had in Dharma at the very first weekend retreat I went to was a little plaque that said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And that was in the 1970s. And that touched me so much, I think to myself, because at that time, I didn't get the instructions for mindfulness meditation. I didn't get why you should do those instructions. I didn't get anything about why I was doing it. I was actually there because my husband had gone on a retreat and he thought it was great. He said, you should do this, Sil. And I usually did when he said you should do this because he was very avid in his spiritual search. And I had a very uncomfortable time my whole first weekend. My body hurt, my mind hurt, I had a headache because there wasn't any caffeine. The whole thing was, during its unfolding, was uncomfortable for me. And a month later, I went on a two-week silent retreat. And I have been on retreat after retreat for 40-some years now, 44 years. Uh, that's a bit more, more than half my life. And I often credit that particular little plaque that said, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Which is actually the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. That if we were to look around and see 
you know, the, the cover of the New Yorker is fun because it's not catastrophes happening to everybody. You know, nobody's in dire jeopardy and they're preferring the idea of a cake to the bagel, but, you know, and they plop their ice cream on the floor. So it's not catastrophic, but nobody's comfortable there. Everybody is just generally uncomfortable. And I think that that's really the essence of the Buddha Dharma, that to be alive is to be in a precarious position. We're either comfortable, comfortable, peaceful, at ease, or we're startled by something, by, I don't like that, may that not be happening now, or, whoa, I really like that. I like the state that I'm now in, or I like that thing over there. How can I make it stay? So that even in pleasant states, we often don't just enjoy them. Wow, this is great. But how can I have more? And greed comes up. How can I make it last? Or something startles and frightens, and then we stay frightened about it. Uh-oh, that passed, but it might come again. What if it comes again? And we worry. We have an amazing ability to be storytellers. <laughs> and especially if... Uh, I have a good ability at making stories and devising possible uh, bad endings to things. Maybe because I have a gene that catastrophizes. Nobody in my family had that. Um, but there's another fundamental Buddhist line, and then we'll do the sutta. And the fundamental line is, anyone who actually understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I think that if I, you know, if I ask people who have been here tell, all, all this year, is that what I'm saying the most, more than anything? Nancy, is that what I'm saying more than anything these days? What do you think? Uh, I'm looking at people who are always here. Brahm, is that what I'm saying all the time? Is that, you said, they think my favorite thing or my main thing? Nancy, what do you think? Yeah, she says, <laughs> we have two Nancys on the screen now. <laughs> I do. I think that's my favorite thing. And I think it means everyone who gets it, that life is uh, precarious, that it's a gift, that it's amazing. You know, that uh, I haven't said this in a long time, I know, but um uh, there's, a, there's an expression of, in, uh, in, in earlier Buddhist teachings about uh, this precious life. It's often in the text, this life is called this precious human life. Well, there's a lot of uh, rap about uh, Buddhism is so full of uh, unhappiness and suffering. I think that that's not a clear understanding. It's full of understanding about the suffering we create when our minds are confused. But it's also about this precious human life. And there was a story that teachers used to tell about if there was a, uh, in all the worlds and all the seas, there were seven, seven or three or maybe one uh, ring, like a, like a life preserver ring floating on the seas. And there was a giant turtle swimming in all the seas. The chances of that turtle surfacing with her neck through that life preserver are uh, better than the chances of being born in a human life. 
In other words, a human life is very precious. And that this precious human life that you and I have now is the only one that we have. And to t- and everyone's is the only one that they have. And to really treat everyone like the amazing, precious life that they are. If we felt that, we would be kind. It doesn't mean we wouldn't set limits. It doesn't mean anything about let everybody get away with everything. It means that do everything that you can to make life good for everyone. But it still means treating everyone as if their life is a precious human manifestation. If I did that, my mind would never be embittered. That my favorite practice line now is, may I be free of enmity and danger. It was the first meta resolve that I knew. May I be free of enmity. And actually, I got taught it, may I be free of danger. And I misunderstood it. Because I thought it meant, may I be free of bad things happening to me or, uh, I don't know, fires or floods or something. But maybe I'd be free of enmity because it is enmity. I could be sitting in the safest place, so to speak, safest place in the world with enough to keep me alive. And I, if I had my mind with me and it were not free of enmity, I would not be at ease. Okay, this is what I want to do. I would like to read to you the Metta Sutta. How many of you have it right in front of you? Oh, good. And even we'll put it up. Let's all read it together. That's a great idea. Toland will now put the Metta Sutta up online. There she is. (laughs) Thank you very much. And I know that we can't all read it together because that won't work. But we can all read it together just on on mute. And uh, I want you to read, and I'm sure maybe half of us have read it before, maybe half of us haven't. And I want you to think about it as you're reading, if there's a line that you want to say, ah, get that, put a note on your copy of it. So we'll read it, to, I'll read it, and you read it as well. And then maybe what we'll do is sit. Oh, we'll sit for mm, 15 minutes, maybe quietly. I'd like you to sit in, uh, in the aura of what you just read and thought said. You can open your eyes and look at it again if you want to. Um, I'll give you one more thing to do as an exercise while you're sitting. But let's all pretend that we are in some jungle in uh, India 2,600 years ago. And the Buddha is preaching this sermon and you are hearing it for the first time. So we'll chant it along with him. We'll say it along with him. So let's do it, and I'll assume you're doing it. Here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, 
and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. So we'll sit.
you want to open your eyes and look around and see the people who are sitting with you. We'll take another three minutes for a personal break for get a drink of water or do whatever else you need to do. We'll be back in three minutes. The more we, um, the more weeks and months have passed that we look at each other in our homes, the more I begin to feel like, I used to feel, well, I'm waiting for us to get back together in person. It's very nice for people. I feel like it's very nice for everybody to invite everybody into their home. We had a lot of time we could, you know, have duets and meet these people, those people. So here we are. No, I want to. I want to look at all of us together. Okay, that's a good way. For how many people you can put up your hands? Well, well maybe that'd be a way. For how many people is this the first time that you have really seriously studied the Metta Sutta? First time, first time. People, three, two, three. No, no, many more than that are raising hands. Raise your hand, and then I can go through the pages and see. Okay, raising hands, raising hands. Electronically raising hands. Raise hands on the electronics. <laughs> I think the electronics is overwhelmed by so many people doing something at the same time. Well, all right. I, I, um, I'll go back. And here we are. And I, I'll read to you, or I'll, I'll go through it again. This is my plan from now, because I, I liked so much that we had time last week to have a substantial time for Q&A. I like that very much. So I want to do that again today. Uh, and I'll tell you some of these notes. If I can read them, you can see what I, I put. This is my copy of, let me see what it, uh, yeah, you can see it's pretty marked up. Okay, this is my Metta Sutta. That's yet one thing I want to tell you just before I did this. I heard a great line the other day. Uh, um, to have a heart uh, that, as my friend um, and my teacher and my colleague, Sharon Salzberg, likes to say, and, and actually wrote a book with this title called The Heart as Wide as the World, where there isn't anybody that's put out of your heart. 
and I love that uh, I, I, I love that name of the, the book. I love the fact that it's about the Metta Sutta. We, we really, the instruction is all living beings. And uh, I thought about it. Somebody said to me the other day, apropos of it, in, in order to love all beings, you have to have forgiven all beings. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I know I've told the story about um, a friend of mine asking me about if there was anybody that I had put out of my heart and that I couldn't let back in. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I in the so, and I responded because this person is one of my really close, as close as intimate friends. I said, well, as a matter of fact, there is one person in the whole world that I just cannot forgive because of what they said. And I told her this long-standing pain in my heart about what X had said to me um, about me. And I, you know, and I was not, I wasn't proud of myself. X is also, I told my friend, who is also a, a mindfulness teacher and a rabbi and uh, lives on the other side of the country. Anyway, we're spending a lot of time. And she said, um, is there anybody that you really haven't forgiven? I said, well, you know, I'll tell you, I won't tell anybody else, but this is one person. And then I tell this whole story about what this person did or said. And I said, you know, uh, uh, I can't get over it. And she said to me, you know, have you ever thought about somebody that there, there's just, if, if there's just one person standing between you and having an open heart full of love for all beings everywhere, don't you think you could get over it? And it was like such a, like such a, um, like a wow, you know, you can't not notice that. And this is 20 or 30 years ago that she said that to me. Wow, one person stands between you. You realize the folly of holding on to something. You have to nurture it. You have to tell yourself the story a million times. And uh, just the other day, I, uh, by the way, I got over it. But uh, the other day, I heard somebody say about someone that they had after a long time suddenly seen a way through to forgive. And uh, that person said, I was letting that person, she said, I told that person, or I told myself, I've been letting you live in my mind rent, rent free for too long. So meaning someone moved in and they didn't pay me rent. They caused me pain and they lived there too long. <laughs> I've been letting someone live in my mind rent free for too long. And I thought that's really what, what it's about, not letting anybody move into your mind and cause you pain, like someone who's moved in. So I'll tell you some of the things I thought about all these lines here. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. So there are a lot of things to say even about a benign line like that. Uh, I actually love it. Uh, that it's so declarative. It doesn't say, this is a good idea, or you might try it out, or why don't you just think about it? It says, this is it. This is a good, this is what should be done by one who's skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. And maybe it's stylistic, and who knows if in Pali it has the same declarative ring, but of no doubt about it, this is it. 
But I like that note, Declare. You know, this is it. I like that the first line of uh, the Mindfulness Sutta, um, Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which you can definitely download from the internet if you want it. The Buddha's Sermon on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness starts with the words, this is the sole way, O monks, for the end of grief and lamentation. This is it. This is the sole way, O monks, for the end of grief and lamentation. I love that. You say, this is it. I, I, I just think there's a determination about that that just lifts me up. And that that path involves being skilled in goodness. It doesn't say being skilled in meditation or being skilled in samadhi or altered states. It says skilled in goodness. I like that. Let them be able and upright. I don't think that means able in the sense of physically able I, or upright in the sense of standing up. I think it's upright as in, up, uh, as in righteousness. I think that's what it's about. And able maybe in the sense of being able to think or cerebrate. I don't think it has to do anything with physical possibilities. Straightforward and gentle in speech. I like that very much also. In, in some of the, um, some of the instructions about why speech, which is its own part of the Eightfold Path. You remember earlier today, I said the first three of the Four Noble Truths is we create suffering. Difficult things happen. We make them worse depending on how we respond to them. But we don't have to. That's the third Noble Truth. And the fourth is, I've just said, we could train the mind so that it met things, it met its life nobly and steadily with kindness, and there was no suffering. So the fourth way is, how do you do that? How do you make a mind that does that? And the fourth noble truth is eight ways of life that the Buddha prescribed that uh, you could uh, take on as a teaching program, as a learning program, like a course with eight chapters. But there are eight chapters that you read at the same time because they are, they're simultaneous. You don't do one and then do another. And one of them, one of them is wise action, means don't do anything that causes suffering or pain to other people gratuitously. But there's a whole separate one called wise speech. Why do you need to have a whole separate one for speech? Because we can do a lot of pain. We can cause a lot of pain from saying things peremptorily or incorrectly or falsely. I used to uh have a framed copy in the, in the, in my study when I long ago when I was as a, a psychologist seeing clients in my studio uh I had a framed copy of a piece of the vinaya which is the uh buddhist uh uh laws the the monks laws of behavior and this piece said before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. In due season, shall I speak, not out of season. For this person's benefit, shall I speak, not for their harm. Uh, in kindness, shall I speak, not in anger. Gently will I speak, not harshly. 
And in truth will I speak, not falsely. So uh, I, it was just there on my side table with a frame around it. And people liked it so much when they came to see me, they would ask to borrow it so they could take it home and copy it and put it up on their refrigerator with a magnet. Somebody said to me once, you know, if you, it said uh, the beginning lines that said, uh, before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus in due season is now the time to bring this up, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, you know, if you reflected on all these things, by the time you finished reflecting, you wouldn't admonish anybody. So I think that's the whole idea. You don't admonish people. You point out to them, you tell them about, you let them know, you make a suggestion, you do something. But admonishing is painful to somebody. You can do it another way. I love that. So where it says... Uh, Gentle in speech. I think that has to do with that. Humble and not conceited. How to think about that. Every time I think about, I, I, this just came in my mind now. Every time I think a derogatory thought on somebody else, this just came in my mind. So maybe it won't turn out to be true. You see if it's true for you. If I see someone or something and I have a derogatory thought about it, it pains my mind. <laughs> I used to, I didn't used to really, there's lots of ways of coming at this, but uh, I walk around my neighborhood and some of my neighbors have strange either things that they think are artistic and I don't think are artistic in there, around their house, or they have political signs that hurt my feelings in front of their house. And it's hard to see any of that without um, thinking a thought uh, that they've got that wrong. I know what's the right, I know the right style. That is now I decorate. I don't have those kind of political views. But the thing that's become clear to me is that when I think that, that it's a conceited view, I know well, good, and they don't, that it's painful to my mind. I can know I don't like that, or I have another view, uh, or I wouldn't decorate with a thing like that, but they would. It's their garden and their house, and they have a different belief. And I, if I met it in my own mind, would well, okay. That's what they believe. It doesn't, it's not, it's not going to do any harm or good for the other person, what I'm thinking. But when you think a conceited thought, I'm better than that, I'm smarter than that, it pains the mind. It's, an, uh, it's, it's, it's where I have made the most headway in my own personal life, I think, in this last year or two. Watching the fact that uh, a derogatory thought is painful to the mind that thinks it. I can think of discriminating thought. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I would do this. But I can do it without being conceited about it. I'm smarter than that. I'm different than that. You think? I don't know. We're going to have questions and answers. You can ask me about it afterwards. Because I'm making it up as I see it. Uh, contented and easily satisfied. Contented 
is a really good word. Like uh, when we were looking at the picture of the uh, of the cover of the New Yorker, nobody there was contented. Everybody wanted something else or something they don't have or something that they'd rather have. And uh, I, I wonder sometimes how much we actually have times where we are just contented, don't need anything. Um, somebody, I, I really wish I knew her name. She was one of two women. I'm not sure which ones. I don't want to quote it who was a Dharma teacher who died in the last decade, who said, apparently was said to have said in her last breath, thank you very much. I have no complaints. So I think to myself, that's a great line to die with. It's also a great line to live with. I'd like to do that in my life. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. Everything is okay. Let them not do peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. We'll leave that. That's fine. I mean, not proud or demanding in nature. That's more or less what I've just said. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later, later reprove. I think that's a great line. I love that line. I think it subsumes all the lines that came before it. And all the precepts, I undertake the precept to not speak harshly or take things that aren't mine or uh, use uh, intoxicants that, that cloud the mind or use my sexuality in some way that would be incorrect. But uh, that all those separate individual rules that of which there are many in all religious systems to say, let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, I think means whatever I said, if I left out anything, this really means everything. If the wise would reprove it, don't do it. If it's not going to be good for you and other people, don't do it. In the next sentence, the next two sentences, I think are the whole point of the whole sutta, really. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. I love that line because I think what it means is if you did all those other things, let them be this, 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 not thinking any kind of um, um, uh, negative um, thought, not uh, any kind of... Uh, Aversive thought. Aversive thoughts don't arise in your mind. Then your mind will feel glad and safe. Because when you think an aversive thought, your mind does not feel glad. It feels stirred up by the aversive thought. If you don't think the aversive thought, you feel glad and you feel safe because you have no enemies. When I go by (laughs) on my daughter's street, there's a person who has enormous signs and flags supporting candidates and parties politically that I do not support. My daughter mentioned to me one time that uh, they're a good neighbor, nice enough people to meet and discuss the weather with. I could think about that. 
don't have to think about the signs and befoul my own mind. I would feel glad and safe. And I would be able, if I felt glad and safe, without any trouble, to wish that all beings be at ease. I just think that's a brilliant line. If my mind were glad and safe, I would not have any hesitation about thinking may all beings be at ease. And I'm, I'm so glad it says at ease. It doesn't say happy or joyful or prosperous, just at ease. Because I think our whole lives are really at ease or not, at ease or not. Everything's okay, everything's okay, everything's okay. Whoops, I don't like that. Everything's okay. Oh, I do like that. How can I get some of that? How can I go get more of that? How can I be sure I keep that? I think it's really a great thing to have a mind that's at ease. So that's what I'm wishing for people. Not that they thrive or that they succeed necessarily, or but may they be at ease. May all beings be at ease. Is a recognition of there's two things, ways we can be in our lives. We can either be at ease or not. And may all beings be at ease. And generally, you know, we all are, we have these precarious lives. In the middle of a precarious life to be at ease. You know, all the stories about when, uh, that make the same point actually, but the Buddha, his great first awareness uh, in, the, in the legend about him is that he was not until he was in his late twenties aware that um, people got old and people died People got sick and people died. And, and that <coughs> in that particular legend where he saw an old person and then a bent over person and then a, a sick and dying person or a dead person, and then a monk walking through in his vision, in his line of vision. And what he understood is this is what's true about life. There is old age, there is sickness, there is death for everyone that makes it to old age. Some people die and get sick earlier, but we are all perishable. And the monk knows that, and the monk is at ease. And really the lesson of that is that it's possible as a human being to know about the truth that life is temporal and surprising and dependent on a zillion other things. And we can live in it comfortably and gratifyingly and gratefully, that's probably the same as gratifyingly, gratefully, if we realize that that's true. So that's the, really the important lines, wishing in gladness and in safety so that you can see clearly and wish. May all beings be at ease. In the next sentence is the most important two words. It says, what, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. Omitting none is what makes that such a radical thing. Omitting none means that, that I would say that ridiculous thing to my friend about everybody in the world I have an open heart to except that one person. What a nonsense that is. That one person is going around having a life and I am clogging up my own mind 
telling myself and retelling myself the story of what they did that hurt my feelings so badly. Whether they are great or mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. You know, I love that about the all beings, even those that are born and those that will be born. I think what I what I was feeling about that uh, is I was I was reminded of uh, the kind of wish that supersedes anything that you can even possibly imagine, even those that haven't yet be, been born. And except if you think about the karma of things, not karma in the sense of you get punished then for what you did now. Karma means things happen. Karma means actions. And if these actions lead to these conclusions, these actions lead to those conclusions. And it's not all, it's not based, I don't believe, on what I personally did. It's just what impersonally happens. I saw in the news this morning that in the, uh, right near, near where I live, uh, we had this storm. It rained pretty heavily last night. And a tree fell over on, and smashed up two cars. Now, it was the middle of the night. And nobody was there. But what if somebody was there in one of those cars? And uh, what if it wasn't in the middle of the night? And it wouldn't have been their fault that they had parked there. It wouldn't have been the rain's fault. And if things happen, that's really what the Buddha meant about karma. Things happen because other things happen. We are having a drought, probably because of uh, planetary warming. So that there is a cause. It's not ex nihilo. But nobody did it. It just happened over time due to ignorance. I particularly like that those born and to be born. Because he can't even imagine. It just means really having an open heart to all beings. And I thought, um, it's like the Bodhisattva vow where people take a vow that says, although beings are numberless and suffering is endless, I vow to end suffering for all beings. It's not a, it's not a line that makes um, grammatical sense or any kind of real life sense. I mean, but it's so extravagant. It's only not extravagant if, it, if you take it to mean I am determined and dedicated to keeping my heart a safe haven for me. Let all my thoughts be kind. Life is so difficult. How can you be anything but kind? I really wanted to have a lot of time for everybody to talk. So let me see if I want to really, let me read through the rest of this. Are you enjoying this, by the way? Do you like this or is it boring? Okay, so I'll continue a little bit. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. I'm sure you can think about, if we were in small groups and I said, tell about beings in other states, I mean, in California, the, the homeless situation is very sad.
and what how can I you know I anyway to be able to address the, the situations that are painful to acknowledge but not hide from them being there let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another that's the key thing let none through anger or ill will wish harm about it on a, another how painful that would be in one's mind. It is, not would be, it is. It's painful to think. The next is a line that I think, I, I, I don't know, we could talk about it in the questions. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So I I I think about that every time I read it. And should I change it just as a parent, not just a mother? Or should I talk about the biology of motherhood? Or is that different from fatherhood? Or are we, aren't we? Okay, so we'll leave that maybe for questions. And also, everybody's mother wasn't wonderful. You know, when I teach, I know that some people had really difficult situations with their mothers. So just as a mother... I thought to myself, uh, just as a mother, one hopes a mother would give her life, or just as a mother might give, anyway, what to do with that about putting in a father? But the word cherish is really important. Thinking again about the preciousness of every life. Radi radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, Freed from hatred and ill will. That's the really, 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 really important line. Freed from hatred and ill will. That's what constricts the mind. That's what causes the mind to be in pain. Hatred and ill will. It's very... Well, we could talk a lot about that. Maybe we will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, I love that line because it means all the time. And, and it's just a poetic way of saying all the time. There isn't any other way to be but standing or walking, seated or lying down, unless you do leaning or kneeling or something. There isn't another position to be. It means all the time. Free from drowsiness means alert. One should sustain this recollection. I, I, we've been, I've had classes in which we thought, what was the recollection that we should sustain? And I think the recollection is may all beings be at ease. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one having clarity of vision, freed from addiction to sense desires. That's what I thought of in that magazine cover. We don't, we don't get freed from being hungry. But if we have something to eat, that's enough. It's not born again is a different word. It's not born again into this world. And it hasn't ever... Thinking about um, consecutive rebirths. Although sometimes... Frequently, you read in Dharma 
about in a past life or in a future life. Uh, it's not a thing that I teach. Uh, I, I actually think that I am reborn every moment of consciousness, depending on how I was the moment before. And uh, that's the kind of rebirth that I like to think about. If I'm very nasty to all the people around me now, when I get to be a really old woman, I won't have any friends and that will be the karmic fruit of my behavior. And that makes sense to me. In this lifetime, if I spend the day thinking mean thoughts about this and I have a headache by the end of the day, that will be the karmic reward. <laughs> but I think that I am born, I think we all are born every moment into the next moment of our life, we are reborn. And that uh, a dedication to, I'm gonna do this, this is what should be done and this is what I'm doing, is a way of being born into a, a life of ease, ease of mind, with no ill will in it. So there are a lot of other things that I could have said, but, Take a breath in. I would like to know what you think, what you want to ask. I was so pleased last week when lots of people asked questions. And so I hope, ask anything about the sutta, ask anything about what I said. Put your hand up if you have a question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.